This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Girls on Ice, a history of the fridging trope. So, uh, it will surprise no one to discover that Jules has been reading. <laughs> yes. Once again. <laughs> Once again. It's kind of my natural state of being, really. It is, yeah. <laughs> anyway, naturally it gave me ideas and I started thinking, and one of the things I started thinking was, hey, this is basically the girl in the refrigerator trope, which was super weird, because what I was reading was written around 2,000 years ago. Yes. Uh, now you might suddenly be going, now hold on, are you trying to claim that uh, they had refrigerators 2,000 years ago? No. But <laughs> we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves, so are, let's yeah. dial it back a bit. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I think it's fair to say both of us, the dragons, are not massive fans of this trope. Um, but we do also seek to understand where ideas come from, and we do try to approach everything in a an open-minded manner. I wouldn't say we always 100% succeed, but we do try. That's usually our starting point. Yes. Um, you know, in this instance, it's less about whether the trope is good or bad, and more about why has it spoken to people for such a long time? Why have we found it across history? Yeah. I mean, obviously, people living in different historical time periods had different attitudes and ideas different practices were accepted even if they were disliked and that's not even taking into account the huge diversity of culture and where in the world people were living during those time periods exactly and while our forebearers had more in common with us than not their attitudes would have made them seem quite alien to us um while if they ever met us many of them would be horrified that humanity has fallen into such moral decline yes Again, depending on when you take your time travels from. Yes. Um, I think basically it's tempting to put an idea or a trope down as being the result of a specific mindset from a specific period of time. And mm. in many ways, that is usually the case. It's usually correct. Yes, but it's not always the case, which is what we're actually going to be discussing today. So I guess let's get into it. Yeah, so let's start off with what is fridging? <laughs> yes. So just a quick catch up in case you're not familiar with the term. Fridging is when a female character is harmed, maimed or killed, usually using assumed gender specific violence such as rape or sexual assault for the sole purpose of advancing the male main character's story arc. Yeah. Uh, the term was coined in 1999 by Gail Simone during online conversations about comic books with friends. It refers specifically to an incident in Green Lantern, Volume 3, Number 54, which was released in 1994, which honestly doesn't seem that long ago to me, <laughs> but is actually a significant period of time ago. Yes. <laughs> um, in which Kyle Rayner, the title hero, comes home to his apartment to find that the villain, Major Force, great name there, had killed his girlfriend, Alexandra DeWitt, and stuffed her in a refrigerator. Yes. 
They then went on to compile a disturbingly long list of women that this kind of depowering scenario happened to in comic books, with the sole aim of stimulating protective traits in the male main character and altering his character arc. Um, and the term entered wide use shortly afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it can be a mother, sister, daughter or friend who is harmed, but usually it's the girlfriend, fiancé or wife. Um, For extra shits and giggles, she may well be pregnant before she's offed. Yes. (laughs) Now, whatever happens to this blank her, it will alter the hero's trajectory. Perhaps he is a gentle or artistic soul, or he's an easygoing person who becomes a a hardened hardened vigilante on a revenge arc. Yeah. Or perhaps, like Ludlum's Jason Bourne, he is an ex-special agent trying to mainstream, and this sends him right back into bloodshed. Yes. Or maybe this makes him a corrupt cop or unbalances him in some way. It can also be the start of a villain story. It can. Yeah. Uh, perhaps worst of all is when this fridging is used to get an old girlfriend out of the way of a new, younger love interest whilst causing man pain. Mm-hmm. And man pain, by the way, is rarely a good thing. It's not the honest suffering of a character, which is part of ongoing character development. Instead, it's a constructed and often contrived type of trauma that is easily shaken off when the action demands it in three pages' time. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So, at this point, you might be saying, all right, I can see it in some respects, but, uh, you know, what's actually wrong with fridging? Yeah, um, okay, from personal experience, uh, as a science fiction fantasy nerd of some four decades standing who happens to be female, I can tell you that constantly seeing your soul representation in the fiction you love, constantly being raped, assaulted, maimed, killed, dismembered, or otherwise having power removed from them is not great. It's kind of a war of attrition. You read one and you go, eh, and then you read seven or eight more, and it's like being ground down. And after a while, it makes you feel a bit shit. Yeah. You know, on a more objective note, it's a sexist trope. There's really no way around that. Yeah. Now, look, if you're feeling a bit defensive right now because we've hit a bit close to home with fiction you love, or even a trope that you, you kind of love without having really given it much thought, that's okay. You can still love something and acknowledge its flaws. Um, something can be can some you know basically something can make a sexism whoopsie and still be quality fiction. I, there's many things I love that definitely have a, a, a whiff of sexism about them mm-hmm. for both men and women. Um, but in no way are we saying that because a book or film hits the sexism button, it's now verboten. Yes. Um, in fact, let's just take a moment to talk about the differences between sexism and misogyny. Um, because lately people use misogyny, uh, the genuine hatred of women and females, when they actually mean sexism. Now this is a real problem, because when you use misogyny, you're suggesting that someone deliberately acted in a way to curtail your rights or freedoms based on your gender, and did it with actual hatred in their hearts. Yeah. But in reality, most sexism nowadays, in the Western world at least, because let's face it, there are countries out there that are are living a very different reality from us. Mm -hmm. Um, But focusing on the Western world for the moment, 
you know, most of the sexism is the result of thoughtlessness. There's there's no real active agency trying to deliberately subjugate women in the West, really. Well, incels, but anyway. Uh... <laughs> I wouldn't call them a force. They're just, they're basically, I mean, every yeah. so often one of them goes a bit nuts and, and drives a car into a shop or something. But ultimately, most of them are pretty powerless. Otherwise, they wouldn't be whinging on the internet. Yeah. Because that's what powerless people do. They whinge on the internet and don't do anything. But anyway, <laughs> there's, there's no, what I'm saying is there's no real patriarchy sitting around stroking their beards and working out how to keep 51% of the population down. There's ignorance, thoughtlessness, and probably some blowback effect because, you know, spoiler alert for the future here, people, if you keep accusing men of being pieces of shit just for being male, you are A, being sexist yourself, and B, also pushing them towards actual misogynistic groups because at least they feel welcome there. So language choice really matters. Yeah. Now, obviously, there is a nasty, dark underbelly out there of genuine misogynists, but most likely they're actually pretty rare in comparison. And pretty toothless. Yeah. We just mostly, in, and, you know, it's not everywhere, obviously. You can't just throw out a, a, you know, a blanket statement. But in, you know, mostly in the Western world, it's society is no longer set up for you to just be able to do whatever you want as long as somebody fits into a, a specific group because yeah. you will get called out anyway um i think the other thing to note is that women can also be sexist against both men and against other women yeah some of the worst sexism i experienced growing up was from other women because i was not conforming to what they believed were feminine ideals Mm -hmm. um, women can even be misogynists themselves. Yeah. Which sounds crazy, but is entirely possible. Yeah. What we're saying is that we don't like this trope because it's frankly a bit shitty and sexist. We are not saying you, the reader or viewer, are shitty and sexist if you like a book or film that happens to have this trope. We like some of them too. The fact of the matter is, is that there are several things where I can say, I really enjoy this book, I really enjoy this. We might have even, you know, used it in the past or whatever or but that it's there's an acknowledgement of of what a trope is and what a story is and also how you receive that story so keep that in mind yeah absolutely um, <laughs> and here's the real kicker the trope is not new yeah it's really not and we're not talking like it's not new as in you saw it a lot in 90s urban fantasy written by both men and women because yeah you absolutely do um but <laughs> basically if you happen to be a male listener and you found that you really identified with the idea of a female loved one being fridged and you know kicking the hero into action then you're not alone we can point you at several thousand years worth of stories which also use this trope <laughs> yes <laughs> so in fact um Historically, this trope has been used to rally armies, start uprising, and found cities and empires. So let's look at a few examples. Yes, um, we're going to go way back to the ancient world. <laughs> well, the ancient world as far as we know it, because there's stuff happening all over the world at this time period, but I am not enough of a historian to tell you everything that was happening everywhere else so i can only touch on the bits i know yeah um but let's start off with andromeda andromeda kind of in modern books of greek myth etc 
She kind of turns up as a bit player in Perseus's overall arc. Um, Perseus was obviously the demigod son of Danai or Dany, depending on how you pronounce it. I've heard it both ways. And Zeus, who um, seduced her whilst dressed as a shower of gold. Make of that what you will. <laughs> anyway, um, if you were an, a child of the 80s and a fan of Clash of the Titans, her, she's a lot more central to the story, but that's not really what happened. What happened is Andromeda's story clashed with Perseus's. Andromeda was a beautiful Ethiopian princess. And let's remember that the term Ethiopia or Ethiopian originally came from the old Greek word, which meant burnt face. So they were very specifically talking about people. I think if you look at, look at it's the old kingdom of Kush, which I believe is the South Sudan. Mm -hmm. So they were very definitely talking about a kingdom of black rulers. Yeah. Anyway, she was the daughter of Queen Cassiopeia and King Cephas, and her parents boasted that her beauty was so great she outshone the Nereids themselves. Um, King Poseidon, King Poseidon, sorry, no, that's Little Mermaid, Poseidon, the god Poseidon, the really scary one, um, <laughs> was not happy about this because the Nereids were technically his daughters and mistresses and what have you. Um, <laughs> so he released not the Kraken, but the Cetus, which is a terrible tentacled sea monster, so really not much difference there, yeah. and set it to plague the coast around Ethiopia. Um, originally, the gods were kind of like, no, we're going to wipe out your entire line, uh, but a deal was struck in the end, and Cassiopeia and uh, King Cephas were persuaded to chain their daughter, the beautiful Andromeda, to a rock, as offering to this sea monster, um, and at which point Poseidon would call off the beast kind of thing, you know, when she was dead, because punishment's got to be rendered. Yep. Anyway, Perseus has just killed the Gorgon, another woman in Greek mythology who really came off quite bad in an argument with the gods she didn't even know she was having. So yep. he's flying around overhead. Sometimes he's on Pegasus, but really the original story is that he's borrowed Hermes' wing sandals. And he's got the Medusa's head wrapped up in his cloak at his side. He looks down and sees Andromeda chained to a rock and falls in love with her because she is that hot. He then proceeds to slay the Cetus, the sea monster. Mm -hmm. um, in some versions, I think it's Ovid. Ovid, who just didn't find the romanticism of uh, <laughs> basically... <laughs> Okay, we're going to stop a moment and talk about Publius Ovidus Nevo, who was a first century <laughs> Roman poet. We know better as Ovid, and let's just keep calling him Ovid because, dear God, that name. Anyway, first century Roman poet, um, and very much a poet, not a historian, not a folklorist of any stripe, really. He has Perseus slaying the... Uh, <laughs> basically, basically slaying the sea monster with a magic sword because apparently holding an abused woman's um, gorgon head to the monster it didn't fit his notions of romanticism Ovid's no. going to come up again later in another story by the way so just hang on to that thought um, but I think the very original one um, which was the, the, as far as we can trace it back was a different Roman historian called Gaius Julius Hyginus again first century uh, said that no, Perseus did the sensible thing used the weapons at hand and held up the gorgon the Gorgon's head, its eyes opened and it turned the sea monster into stone and Andromeda was saved. There are various versions about what happens next. Some of them say that Andromeda 
kind of like the look of Perseus too and was quite happy to marry him and go with him on his journeys as he rescues his mother and then goes back and reclaims his lost kingdom of Argos obviously mm-hmm. the kingdom not the store <laughs> <laughs> it's really unfortunate when merchandisers now like take things and think oh it's from greek myth no one will ever know and then when you try and discuss it it sounds like you're talking about a sports shoe or something yeah <laughs> anyway um but again uh i think it was uh, john tetsis in 12th century byzantium uh, made a point of saying that Perseus abducted Andromeda off the rock. So she's having a great day. She's and really he, having a great day. <laughs> he refused to give her back until finally a settlement was arranged so that her father agreed that she could marry Perseus, whether she had me saying it or not. Um, but I think the thing to look at here is, you know, in line with our theme of fridging, etc., Andromeda is given no personality whatsoever, except no. that she's beautiful beautiful and tall and black-skinned which was interestingly removed from later tales yeah shall we say um and then in addition to this she is the sacrifice for her entire kingdom so there you go you, you've got your damsel in distress she's basically being fridged as we watch yes it's only by perseus's heroic actions that she avoids this fate where she goes back to being basically a non-entity who follows him around being his beautiful dutiful wife Um, and if you're thinking hold on this feels familiar yes (laughs) yes it does strangely this is a thing that just keeps coming up in Greek mythology I haven't written all of these down but let's take for example the face that launched a thousand ships Mm -hmm. there is absolutely no way that the Trojan War was entirely about Helen Helen made a great excuse uh, for whatever passed for the Trojan War as we came to know it in historical terms in mythological terms yes it's romantic to say it was all for the beauty of this one woman and the fact that this was a violated vow and paris abducted helen even though earlier sources say that actually she was kind of quite bored with menelaus and yeah quite fancied paris and you know there was the doom of the gods etc etc um but you'll, you'll notice this is an ongoing theme where it's a case of elopement where a woman actually takes hold of her own sexual agency later authors come along and say no 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 it was rape it had to be rape otherwise we can't like this character basically yeah so yeah again you, you've got helen again the sort of damsel in distress who is given a tiny bit more personality but it's not a great personality and again her main characteristic is she's beautiful um she doesn't really get fridged so much but she's just used as this fulcrum to get the the trojan war off the ground um yeah in reality if there's real historical precedence for this and there seems to have been is that king priam was laying claim to waters and heavily taxing them taxing ships and traders and things for going through them and he didn't have the power to really back up that claim so he pissed off rival kingdoms they said yeah we're not really having this and they went to war against him for that Helen yeah. may not have actually ever existed. I'm sorry if you're you're sort of one of those I love the romanticism of the myths, but she may well not have existed at all. <laughs> Maybe Helen was a stretch of water. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's not stupid. Or you know, she <laughs> she's in some lost body of myth where she was actually I don't know. Well, I mean, she was supposed to be one of Zeus's daughters, wasn't she? I have no idea at this point. 
Well, her mother was le- her mother was leader, and Zeus dressed up as a swan this time because he is the OG furry and yeah. seduced leader dressed as a swan. And leader gave apparently birth she to... was she was an OG furry as well then. <laughs> apparently so. I mean, the swan was just so beautiful. Um, and she gave birth to Clytemnestra, who was the, the daughter of her husband, and to Helen, who was very much the daughter of Zeus. And even though they were twin girls and they had the same colouring and features, etc., you could tell that Helen was the daughter of Zeus because she was so beautiful. <laughs> Greek myth. I love Greek myths. Greek myths be fucked up, people. <laughs> anyway, so you've got Helen. You've also got... We've talked about Hades and Persephone in great detail. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that in the original myths, Hades didn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, that this was something that was added by um, historians and poets later, partly as kind of a titillation thing, but partly also because the myth would not fit with the times whereby women were subservient to men if they weren't with the original myth, whereby, no, the only gods are female. Yeah. Um, And there's loads and loads and loads of other versions of this in Greek myth, so many that we could almost do an entire episode just on those poor tragic women. Yes. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's move on uh, to the next one, uh, which is Lucretia um, in uh, 510 BCE. Yes. Now, it's really worth remembering that this is slightly more... There's a little bit more evidence that this definitely has a basis in historical fact, although, again, consider the source and consider the, <laughs> consider the records and the time period. This was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um so this is such a stupid story but i'm gonna tell it anyway because yes please do (laughs) just nuts let's remember that rome was not always the powerful empire that conquered most you know a good third of the known world um and more and ruled for a, a good long period of time let's start off with that rome was actually originally started by a bunch of upstarts who basically nearby etruscan kingdoms kicked out and didn't want any more and they said we're going to found our own city and then they realised they were all men and they were going to have difficulty founding a a flourishing city Um, you know if you ever want to talk about the Roman abduction of the Sabine women we'll we'll go into it another time but Rome was not the sexy powerhouse that its late propaganda led us to believe it was Yeah. anyway sometime between it being sexy powerhouse and being its scrubby little origin Um, we have the story of Lucretia. Uh, Back then, Rome still had kings. We'd had a very successful king right before this story kicks off. Um, He ruled for 47 years, and it was a time of great peace and, you know, stuff moving forward. Well, it was great peace for the Romans, but, you know, everyone else around them was having a bit of a shit time of it because, you know, there were Romans next door. Yeah. Anyway, he dies. Slightly mysterious circumstances. Mm -hmm. And... Tarquinius takes over. Tarquinius was a shit king. (laughs) It's amazing how he got there. He wasn't even Roman. He was from somewhere else. But we'll get into that again. We don't have time to go into it today, but it's it's a good story. (laughs) Again, it was more down to his wife than him. Anyway, he was awful. The Romans were calling him a tyrant. Please just let that sink in. The Romans were calling him a tyrant and a warmonger. Okay, wow, wow, okay, the Romans. (laughs) Yeah, the actual Romans. The Senate didn't like him, but they were too afraid to speak out because he randomly executed people 
without trial on a whim. Uh, he had good Roman citizens publicly flogged. That was something you didn't do. You only did that to slaves. I mean, for God's sake. And then on top of that, he was making actual Roman citizens work and build things like his great sewage project. Yeah. And the, Roman, wow. the Romans were a little <laughs> bit sort of like, why have we got all these slaves if you're making us work? Yeah. So, you know, mixed sympathy for the Romans there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving away from Tarquinius, this really rubbish ruler, to be quite honest, who just schemed his way to the top with the help of his wife. Um, it takes us to his second cousin once removed, which sounds like it shouldn't be very important, but it was very important by Roman standards. He mm -hmm. was called Tarquinius Sextus. Now, in the interest of us not being totally confused, I'm just going to call him Sextus because otherwise it's Tarquinius this and Tarquinius that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sextus was on campaign uh, about 20 miles away from Rome with two of the king's sons. Okay. And... <laughs> Sorry, I'm already laughing. And one <laughs> evening, they were very, very bored. The thing is with war, war is 90% of the time very, very boring because you're not doing anything. You're just camped out somewhere, polishing your weapons and waiting for battle, etc. War is dull. So they were sitting around and Sextus starts boasting about how virtuous his wife Lucretia is. Well, the king's sons are not going to allow that and they mock their cousin and start saying, no, they have far more virtuous wives. Uh, because they're Roman men, this turns into a bit of an argument. Let's just say that uh, a good wife in Roman terms was the most virtuous, self-effacing, self-denying and industrious. That those were mm -hmm. the, the qualities they really wanted in a woman. And um, the argument escalated to the point that all three of them got on their horses and rode 20 miles back to Rome. <laughs> In order to spy on the wives in question and find out what they were doing when their husbands were away at war, so they could decide the outcome of this bet. Right. They went first to the palace and both the royal sons were horrified to find their wives having nice dinner parties and drinking wine. Right. <laughs> now, by Roman standard, a woman drinking wine meant that a woman would engage in adultery. Right. So it's looking pretty bleak. So the next thing they do is they then go and spy on Lucretia. Uh, Lucretia is sitting up with a number of her slaves uh, who are all industriously spinning wool, which is horrible to work because un unrefined wool is obviously full of lanolin, very greasy. And, you know, it's by dim flickering lamplight, so you're ruining your eyes, you're ruining your hands. You're getting carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, the usual. Now, at this point, Ovid, who is one of the sources of the story, weighs in and lets his romantic flag fly, saying that Lucretia was not merely spinning wool industriously, she was spinning wool to make a cloak for her husband because she was so worried about him on campaign that he should take a cold, and she's stopping every so often to wipe a tear from her eye because she's concerned about his safety as well. Right. <laughs> I think this tells you yes. a lot about Ovid, <laughs> frankly. Anyway, they can see that Lucretia is not drinking wine. She's clearly a virtuous, self-effacing woman who is employing herself industriously. Um, at which point, um, <laughs> at which point Sextus says, yes, come in and she shall provide a meal for you. I imagine Lucretia was thrilled to be saddled with her husband and two of his friends 
suddenly at night when she immediately then had to obey the hospitality laws and provide food, wine and uh, bed bedrooms for them. Um, one of the king's sons, whose name has escaped me for the moment, liked her a little bit more. He was, you know, this industriousness, this <laughs> this girl covered in sheep grease <laughs> who was ruining her eyes by lamplight was absolutely yeah, really super doing it hot. He, he, yep, he was really, really taken with her. And in sources, he praises her white skin and yellow hair as well, etc. Anyway, she finally gets rid of them all. They have to go back to their camp, otherwise they're going to be marked as missing. Um, and she gets a few days to herself until this cousin of her husband's, one of the king's sons, turns up on her door late one evening again. And she is once again forced to go through the hospitality ritual of inviting him in, providing him food and a bed. Um, she is awoken in the night from her own bed with an arm pressed down on her chest. At which point, this particular son declares his love for her and says that he intends to, you know, enjoy her carnally. And Lucretia's like, no, you don't think so, mate. <laughs> no, I am a chaste wife to my husband. Um, this son doesn't want to just rape her, however. He really kind of wants her to submit to him. He wants to despoil her. He's so angry that he's lost this bet and so inflamed by this woman who turned him on with her spinning, that he has to have her willingly. And he alternately professes his love, tries to seduce her, offers to make her queen when he's king, and threatens to kill her. And through it all, Lucretia just says, no, no, I'm not sleeping with you, no. And then he finally hits on the one thing. He says, if she doesn't submit to him, he'll rape her anyway, kill her, and then kill one of her male slaves, and then tell her husband that he caught them in the act of adultery and remove all her honour from her. At which point, Lucretia's like, well, I'm never going to get to tell my story if that happens. So she allows it to go through. And at which point, um, <laughs> the following day, he leaves and he thinks, you know, he's won. He's despoiled this virtuous woman who inflamed his lust. Lucretia, however, very calmly goes about her day. And then she summons her husband and her family and everyone else she knows of, of note to an audience and she sits in front of them and she tells them the whole story. She lays it all out in front of their feet. She then grabs a knife and stabs herself in the heart and kills herself. And some of the original sources suggest she did this in order to take back control of her body, having been effectively raped, even mm -hmm. though she was coerced into it. And some say that, no, she was very definitely trying to provoke a civil war within Rome because enough was enough if a king's son could go around doing what he had done to this very well-born yeah. noble Roman woman. Either way, it worked out because at that point, everyone who'd been so scared of Tarquinius, this tyrannical king, absolutely <laughs> did their nut. Our husbands... <laughs> yeah, seriously, they, they, they were not happy. They lost their shit. Um... Her family and her husband had her displayed publicly with a a, a crier set telling her story, telling what had happened. And the people were incensed and they rose up against Tarquinius and Tarquinius's reign came to quite a nasty, sticky end. Yikes. <laughs> yes. This is an, it's an interesting one though, because yes, it is a, it is a fridging, but it's, it's you, you don't expect the fridging to happen from the character's point of view, do you? 
You don't, although you have to remember that it was written, again, Ovid and a bunch of others. Um, it's a very... If you actually read the original text, which I'm not necessarily recommending, it's very much a male yeah. perspective on the whole thing. And Lucretia is kind of presented as being the body of Rome, and Rome itself mm-hmm. is being raped, if you see what I mean. So I think I told it then as though it was more her point of view, but actually what you really get is not her point of view. It's her husband's horrified point of view that yeah. this has happened kind of thing. That's very interesting. So, yes, inspired <laughs> a civil war, <laughs> replaced the king. Um, OK, let's go on to... Let's let's move to more familiar climbs. Um, we move to mm-hmm. early Britain. And Boudicca in the in 60 CE, yes. so 60 Common Era. Very early on, however, yeah. as well. I love this story. <laughs> I say I love this story. I don't love it, but I remember just being totally sort of taken by it as a, as a kid. Just, you know, it kind of changing everything. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I'm really worried that I'm going to piss all over that. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I, <laughs> as a kid, and then obviously the more I've explored it and stuff like that, things have changed. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, uh, okay, so for anyone who doesn't know who Boudicca is, she was the queen of the Ursini. Um, and, you know, she she definitely exists. We exist. She's, she existed, she's sorry. still around she's today. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a definite sighting on her body after the after Watling Field battle. Um, but, you know, I don't think she then became an immortal and lived through the ages. That would, that would be a different story altogether. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm being derailed it already. <laughs> You've exposed yourself. Okay. <laughs> the truth is now out there. Um, anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> anyway, uh, Boudicca was the wife of, as, as well as being queen of the Iceni, and she would have been the daughter of a, a king or chieftain from nearby. Let's remember that the Celts were not this homogenous globule of people. They were, in fact, several different tribes, and most of the time yeah. they're at war with each other. However, she became queen of the Ossini and she, when she married their king, whose name I can't pronounce, but something like Pragnatus, Pragnatus, when, and they had two daughters, and when Pragnatus died, as Tacitus records it, um, he, uh, Pragnate, King Pragnatus left a large part of his kingdom and property mm-hmm. to Nero in Rome. Nero was now the emperor. Um, Nero probably didn't give a shit about a few square miles in Britain, by the way, Nero was certifiably fucking nuts. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> really started to go That's wrong definitely that one point. way of describing <laughs> Well, you know, Nero's Cousins kind of like, marry. this is why you shouldn't <laughs> let nieces and uncles yeah. marry. You know, kind of. Anyway. Um, <laughs> any, sorry, I'm really derailing myself. Back to Boudicca. Um, Yes, and Boudicca, as was you know, as was the practice of the time, was took over places ruler. She was perfectly capable. She had two daughters. She'd already proven herself. Everyone was willing to accept her as leader. She was not happy about giving away a large chunk of land, so she said no to the Romans. The Romans had her publicly stripped and flogged, like you would a slave. Again, mm-hmm. it's Tacitus's word, like a slave. 
that's supposed to be mm-hmm. the ultimate humiliation to treat someone like property, yeah. except that he also owned slaves. So, you know, please square that circle for me. Um, and then apparently had his da- had her daughters publicly raped, at which point Boudicca was all in, and she <laughs> she ki- uh, she rose up and she raised an army against the Romans and was made a pretty damn successful mm. attempt to drive them from Britain. To be honest, it came very very close. I'll go into that more in a moment. The thing is with Tacitus is that his annals were. You can't trust them as being historically accurate. There's some of them, there's some accuracies in there, but this is very, Mm -hmm. very similar to the story of Lucretia to the point where it was probably inspired by the story of Lucretia. And what Tacitus was kind of saying, even though he was using a woman to say it, and let's be honest, women in charge was Mm -hmm. the sort of thing that really disgusted Tacitus because it was unnatural. But Rome had gone soft and rotten, and the reason that these savages managed to rise up against Rome, led by a woman, uh, was because they were acting in justice. Right was on their side, and it only failed in the end because they made the mistake of letting a woman Uh with her silly, weak female brain lead. So that's what Tacitus was saying. Another source actually goes into more detail. It's less of a thrilling read than Tacitus, in fairness. and talks about the fact that actually what happened was during the reign of Claudius, Claudius arranged for several large lump sums of gold to be given to Mm -hmm. various uh, Britanni tribes. And they were very happy to have them, thank you very much. And it really didn't bother most of them that they were, you know, sovereign states of this huge Roman Empire because it didn't make a lot of difference to them. The thing with being you know, a ruled state is that you then have to build all the stuff the Roman wants and the Romans want, and they want you to do it out of your own pocket. And most of them couldn't afford to build amphitheatres and baths and um, huge towns and things. Uh, So Seneca, you know, the philosopher who advised Claudius and then became an advisor to Nero, said, no, no, that's fine. I will lend you money to do this. I will give you the money. In fact, I think that's how he originally phrased it. Um, I'll give you the money. And so that happened, and they, they built all the shit the Romans wanted, even though that they were looking at it and going, why do you need this? Mm-hmm. Not sure about the giraffes. <laughs> do we need all the elephants? Uh... Yes, exactly. <laughs> Interesting aside here, when Claudius turned up to conquer Britain, he did take war elephants with him. Why? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> he obviously didn't know much about the climate and the the, the sort of possible landing sites. <laughs> Anyway, um, Rome was going to the dogs. You know, the whole... The uh, the one thing most people know about Nero is he was playing the fiddle whilst Rome burned. Yeah. Um, This may have been a literal thing, not just just kind of a, you know, a metaphor. Um, He really was going, la, 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 hang out in my garden with my my scantily clad youths, etc., and ignore the fact that the entire city is literally in a shambles. Mm. Um, it's no wonder that the Goths came through and went, yeah, we'll just sack Rome. Yeah. So what if no one's done it before? Because no one's paying any attention. Um, Seneca saw the fact that they weren't going to hold on to Britain for very much longer, panicked and immediately called in his loans for something like 40 million Cistercian. Right. Uh, the Celts, 
didn't have this money because they'd been told to spend it on building lots of shit that Romans wanted mm-hmm. and they were not happy. They kind of lost their shit at this moment. Yeah. And it was more the collective thing of, oh, you know what? Rome were actually a bunch of loan sharks and what the hell are we getting out of this deal? And they now think they own us and they can enslave our people, etc. That really set Boudicca off. Yeah. Um, and she did raise an army and she burned Colchester, especially the Temple of Claudius. That got raised right to the ground because she wasn't very impressed with him anymore. And <laughs> the Romans were like, oh shit, we, we need to bring a legion in. They, they've been so docile all this time and everyone's been allowed to go about their own thing. We need to bring a legion in. So they imported a legion in and Boudicca wiped them out. Yeah. Not alone, obviously. It wasn't like Samson. She had an army. <laughs> but it kind of... It kind of proved to the Romans that actually the ancient Britons weren't this savage, disorganised tribe who wore smelly blue shit on their skin and went into battle naked. Um, they, they literally completely wiped out to the last man, uh, Legion number nine. Nice. From Legio nine. <laughs> uh, at which point, Rome doesn't tend to respond very well to that, so they really came back in force. Came back in force. Uh, Boudicca and her army were in the process of having successfully sacked the capital of Britain, which was Colchester at the mm-hmm. time, had now moved on to London, which was a major trading port, uh, etc., and had a really good go at burning that down. And you can still see areas where this happened. Um, and they might uh, very well have succeeded, except that superior tactics um, at the Battle of, of Watling Field or Watling Road led to Boudicca's army meeting defeat. We don't actually know how she died. In one story, um, she caught a mysterious illness and died of that. Um, But the interesting thing is that Tacitus allows her to take her own life with poison. Mm. In Roman terms, that's actually an honourable way to die. You don't go into slavery, you don't go and, you know, remember how the Romans treated other Celtic leaders. They paraded them around Rome, etc. Although, actually, they treated them a lot better than people think they did. Yeah after the parading and everything they were usually allowed to have homes families villas wine etc as long as they lived quietly yeah um but she didn't do that she stuck with what she had originally set out to do and um was allowed to take her own life in tacitus's annals and once again we're back to tacitus saying well she failed because she was a woman so what do you expect but also she succeeded initially because she was right and rome is you know it's not like it was back in the day kind of thing. yeah <laughs> what a heartening message. <laughs> yeah, so basically the entire story about her being publicly flogged and her daughters being raped probably didn't ever happen. It was put in by Tacitus as a re- direct reference to Lucretia. Yeah. Okay, all right. So our next one, um, Bothald and Welland the Smith. Yeah, I'm going to make this one quite quick. This is... Essentially, it's from a poet called Dior. Not, <laughs> not obviously the perfume manufacturer. Oh my God! Can everyone just have different names, please? <laughs> um, from the 10th century and from the Vida, which is the Codex Regius from the 13th century. This is all part of the brute tradition. Mm. Um, I strongly suggest you go and check out the legend of Wayland the Smith. It's really, really interesting. But in this version of it, Wayland has married a Valkyrie, but the Valkyrie don't do very well living within stone walls. No. 
and eventually she sickens for the skies and she he he finds her putting her cloak of feathers back on to fly up to her sisters and said well I can't follow you stay with me and she's like I can't stay with you I literally need to be elsewhere Wayland doesn't take this very well um and because he's he sort of goes into a bit of a decline um and he's enslaved by a nearby king um imprisoned on an island and forced to make armor and jewelry and stuff like that uh he retaliates by luring the king's two sons to the island with promises of weaponry the like of which no one's ever Mm -hmm. seen and then he kills both of them yes um and the king is furious about this obviously and demands that Wayland repair a ring that was made for his daughter, Bothyld. <laughs> which seems like not really enough of a punishment, but I think Wayland is technically like a demigod. <laughs> Sorry, I just... This story, I say it makes me laugh. It's one of those things where you're like, really? <laughs> really? This is where you got annoyed? Yeah, um... And uh, Wayland refuses. So Bothild, thinking that she can appeal to his better nature, goes there with her broken ring to ask him herself. And the story goes, in fact, if you read the the poetic Edda, there's a verse that very clearly, without saying he t- he raped her, um, very clearly says that, you know, he he overpowered me and I had no means by which I could fight him. And it's very clear from Bothild's one verse where she actually says anything mm. that that is what we're supposed to think happened yeah um and i think you've got to think about the time that the poetic edda was kind of being translated or how it was originally written etc mm. but certainly the codex regius which is you know the po- where we've got the sources for the poetic edda which was originally you know an oral tradition um goes with the line that she she was raped by Wayland and then later on had a son by him. Yeah. Uh, he escaped the island, obviously. Um, and, it you know, it's, it's pretty brutal. But this was kind of translated or made available in the 13th century. And what was going on in the 13th century but didn't really come into proper fruition for another sort of 50 years or so uh, was the idea of raptus. Now... <sighs> The raptus is basically the seizure of another man's goods. It's seizure of something to which you have no right. Mm. It can mean rape. It can also mean that you nicked somebody's horse. Yeah. Or you nicked their daughter. And the very reason that rape and seizure of someone else's property came to mean what it did was because a lot of Lord's daughters were going, you know what, I don't want to marry that 50-year-old man. I'm only 14. Yeah. And they were eloping with handsome young men instead. Yes. And they were consenting. They went consentingly, they got married, and it was very, you then couldn't get them back. So Raptus was designed in order to basically basically be this system whereby you could stop your daughter running away with the person she actually wanted to marry rather than persuading her to marry someone she didn't want to marry. Mm. (laughs) So this, this Codex Regius in the 13th century was kind of speaking to that if you like so it's absolutely well she went somewhere alone unaccompanied um, where there was a man and this tragic thing happened and yes we're all very sorry for her but let's let our daughters know about this that they may be the wiser kind of thing Mm -hmm. whereas if you read the original versions as close as you can get them of Wayland and Bothild Wayland fell in love with Bothild and he worked for her father uh, willingly 
you know, very much like um, Jacob in the Bible and in biblical stories Mm -hmm. um, wanted to marry Rachel and worked for her father for seven years um, in order to win her hand. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's what happened. And they got married and Bothield was very into Wayland as well. They got married and they had a son who then goes on and continues the saga, etc. Yes. So it's just, I find it very interesting that you've got this, no, 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 she was raped, it was horrible, it was brutal, it's I mean, part of the brute tradition, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the original story, if you check other sources, is that, no, this was this was an unusual love match and this very talented smith had to prove that he was worthy of marrying this great lady. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Heaven forbid they... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> they have that kind of story. No, no, they've got to fridge someone instead. Okay. So, uh, let's move on to the next one, which is Gunhild of Wessex. So, 1093. Yes, I'm going to make this one fairly quick, but um, this is obviously after the Battle of Hastings. Now, it varies as to whether Gunhild is actually uh, Harold Godwinson's sister, mm-hmm. much younger sister, who entered um, who entered a nunnery and monastery um and by the way nunneries back then gave you a lot of freedom as a woman you could basically self-direct your life mm. which a marriage wouldn't necessarily give you in the same way certainly not after the normans came along yeah. um or whether she was in fact one of harold godwinson's uh, daughters by edith swanisha or edith the fair um, we're not sure because historical record gets a bit spotty. That's what happens when you have a major war like the Battle of Hastings. Yep. But she did exist and she entered a monastery and then she met and eloped with uh, a young nobleman. Well, actually, he was an, I say young. He was 50. He wasn't young. He was 50. Mm-hmm. 50 was old in those days. <laughs> um, called Alan the Red. He, he took her fancy. Let's be honest here, though. Ganhild would have been about 30 at this point. Mm-hmm. So she entered a nunnery as a sort of 14, 15 year old. And then when she got to her 30s, this man caught her eye and apparently they really sort of hit it off. Um, But it was put about that she was raped and abducted. And actually what happened was she went along quite willingly because she wanted to leave the monastery. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of the the stories that were told were and even, you know, noble daughters, etc., can be um, molested. Even sisters who are living lives of virtue in nunneries can be assaulted by Norman savages kind of thing. Yeah. And it it kicked off a lot of ill feeling. I mean, the Battle of Hastings didn't settle everything. There was lots of ill feeling between the Saxons and the Normans for the next couple of centuries. Yes. Um, and members of the Godwinson family kept turning up and doing shit and undermining <laughs> undermining the ruling Normans not getting on board with the scheme the idea of Ganhild going you know what this is all very silly and I like that guy I don't care if he's Norman <laughs> was really offensive so they had to turn it into a story of rape and abduction yes um, it, it is it's one of those interesting things because of course you know we've talked about in the past also the, the fact that um, you'll see versions of stories where this sort of rape um, is kind of uh, sort of put forward where actually um, 
it might actually just be more to do with sort of the 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 social climate of basically saying well you can't have this character be seen as worthy and them also want to have sex so we have to create this implication which is that they don't they don't want it um yeah. etc and but historically there's actually much more of a political drive within the story instead which does make a lot of sense yeah yeah absolutely um okay we're moving very briefly on to part of the arthurian cycle here and you know quite frankly what we've got left of the arthurian cycle 90 percent of it is fan fiction based on an oral tradition yes. so bear that in mind and it depends whether you're going with jeffrey of monmouth whether you're looking at mallory whether you're looking at some of the early celtic or even welsh myths whether you are following the brute tradition and brute tradition arthurian cycle is really fucking weird just got to say that <laughs> it's interesting but it's bizarre really bizarre anyway leaving all that aside um there is a there's a, a variety of tales about Guinevere being abducted by a upstart nobleman or upstart king of the summer country, so the, an upstart king of Somerset, even though she was technically the landholder for Somerset herself, mm-hmm. um, abducting her and raping her in order to get her pregnant. Well, that that was this guy. I think it's Melior. Yeah. Or Melius. Melius. Um, who. The, the idea was that he would then be able to say, no, I, I hold her as wife because Arthur has not managed to impregnate her, but I have. And, you know, here you go. We have children together and this is now definitely my kingdom. So very much the old abduction wedding thing. What's really interesting is this doesn't really enter the body of myth until after the Norman Conquest. Mm. And there's lots of versions of it. But the earliest version is probably from the life of Gildas by Caradoc of Lanfa. Lancarthen, Lancarthen, which is around 1150-ish. So again, you've still got that background conflict of the Saxons and the Normans not really getting on, even though they have intermarried to a certain extent now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think there's... I could, I've, I've read five different versions from myth where Guinevere gets abducted. In fact, just on this one occasion, if you looked at the Arthurian cycle as a whole... Guinevere during her lifetime gets abducted five times. Yeah, she she really is <laughs> just there to be abducted. So, and it's yet another one because it you know she's she's Guinevere. She is the white wave. She is the the most beautiful, etc., etc. She's supposed to be almost a ver- a, a version of the Virgin Mary kind of thing. Yeah. You know, beautiful and untouchable, and which is what makes the whole sort of Lancelot love triangle situation so tragic apparently but again that was added in much later Mm. um, to appeal to a more medieval audience so once again this to me this kind of smacks of the whole rewriting of the Hades and Persephone myth where you're no we we can't have a woman going off and (laughs) having a good time of her own volition (laughs) Um, this, this really absolutely has to be a case of you know, she was abducted and raped kind of thing. And you, you kind of get this sense of this is partly for titillation, partly as a warning. Um, and again, it, it's feeding into that, no, you don't go anywhere near the Normans kind of thing. Yeah. The upstarts. 
it's it it's just so interesting of course because any time you get these stories and they're written down that's when you've got to basically say all right who's writing it and why yeah. what are you saying why are you saying it <laughs> because who are the people who can write and who are the people who can read during this time what you know what's what's the implication here because it's probably not as straightforward as we're uh, as we're pretending it is yeah absolutely um, a very brief flitter across to Wales <laughs> when we'll talk about Branwyn, sister of Bendigaid Fran or uh, Bran the Blessed, mm-hmm. the owner of the Black Cauldron, the Magic Cauldron <laughs> um, and the whole nasty business with that Irish king and her uh, <laughs> and her stepbrother of Nisha mm-hmm. <laughs> um Branwyn has a very, very little personality in this. She's not given much to do at all. And it's a horrible story. It really is. Yeah. Uh, this is sort of, again, dating back to around 1350. The, the, probably the original oral traditions gave her a lot more agency. But what happens is an Irish king comes courting Branwyn. And Bendigade Fran is minded to give his consent to this union, regardless of what Branwyn wants. Mm-hmm. And Ephnician is so horrendously offended that he wasn't consulted on his sister's marriage <laughs> that he goes out and kills he goes out and kills all the Irish um, all the Irishmen's horses and he literally skins them and then hangs them up as an insult. Um, the Irish king is absolutely very very insulted and Bendigade Fran really has quite a lot to do with in order to get them to calm down. In the end, he gives them his own magical cauldron, which will bring people back from the dead. And they take Branwyn and they go off to Ireland, but nobody really forgets the insult. So after Branwyn has had had a, a son, mm-hmm. she kind of gets mistreated. She gets knocked about and made to do kitchen duties and stuff, which is not suitable for a queen and everything else. She catches a wren or a sparrow, I can't remember which, might be either and she teaches it to come to her and then eventually she sends it with a message to her brother saying I'm being ill-treated please come and rescue me. Um, Bendigade Fran and all the others including Ephnician <laughs> all saddle up and head off to Ireland to say what are you doing you should be treating your kinswoman well. Um, Bendigade Fran at this point we should mention is a giant no normal house can, ho- can hold him so the Irish realising they've got this deputation from Wales coming, they're like, oh shit, we better build a bigger house. So they built a much bigger house that would actually fit Bendigate Fran. <laughs> I like the fact that they're, <laughs> you know, they've been mistreating her sister, but they're like, oh no, we better <laughs> we better be, have enough of a house to welcome them or quickly. <laughs> yes. Um, it was the practice at the time to hang up sacks of, of meal and vegetables and meat, etc. from the rafters because you had to store it off the ground. Yep. Except that in this big house that will actually fit Bendigade Fran, they they hang up twenty sacks or a hundred sacks, depending on what source you're reading, and in each one is concealed um, a, a, a fully armed, <laughs> fully armed house car, fully armed and manned arms. That sounds comfy. <laughs> yes. Anyway, they're having the feast, and Ephnician's kind of pissed off. He's already insulted. Let's not make any bones about this. Ephnician is a psycho. He's an absolute psychopath. Yeah. 
The only reason Betty Goodfriend keeps him around is, other than the fact that he's kin, is the fact that he's useful in certain nasty situations. Yes. <laughs> he goes off and decides to have a sleep in this big house that's been built for them. But he's suspicious, and he looks at the sacks and he thinks that's not quite the right shape, so he stabs it, and of course it starts bleeding, so he goes around and stabs all the others <laughs> as well. <laughs> He goes back in uh, to the feast and he tells, ben, in his, he's trying to get Bendigate Fran's attention um, and he's so full of rage that he seizes Branwyn's son and throws him in the fire. This poor infant. Yeah. At which point war breaks out between the Welsh and the Irish. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Irish have a magical cauldron that can bring the dead back, so every so often... <laughs> You know, the Welsh are doing very well at killing off the Irish, but the Irish are just chucking them in the cauldron and they're coming back out again and going back into fight. So, yep. you know, it's almost like having your own zombie army. Yep. <laughs> Ephnician's killing more than anybody else, but after a certain point, he thinks this is really silly and either by accident or design, he conceals himself in a pile of Irish corpses and gets himself thrown alive into the cauldron and thus breaking its magic and allowing the Welsh to carry the day. And then there's some weird stuff that happens after that with Bendigate Fran's head, but we'll ignore that because yeah. that's a bit beside the point. <laughs> that's a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> well, once again, Branwyn, the abused woman who ends up dying trying to get her son out of a fire that her brother threw him into, um, is the is the flag by which the war between this Welsh tribe and this Irish tribe go to war. Yeah. Um, and doesn't get any kind of really personal ending or anything like that for herself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, briefly talking about more, I say more modern times, but and I'm pretty sure this is true for every war everywhere throughout history, but thinking about World War One and World War Two propaganda, um, where it's hinted at that if the enemy comes they'll take your sisters, they'll take your wives and your mothers and they will rape them in the streets kind of thing yeah. um, actually the Germans weren't necessarily famous for this I'm not saying it didn't happen but you could absolutely be certain it would happen if the Russians turned up on your shore because that's absolutely what happened in Berlin when the Russians invaded there during the Second World War mm. uh, it's kind of it, you don't have to dig very far to find out that actually that's kind of portrayed to certain aspects of the Russian military as a perk if you win. And I'm not pointing a finger just at Russia. There are many, many other places and cultures around the world that do the same thing. Yes. Um, during the medieval era, we did have a very ongoing war with France mm -hmm. and, and also Scotland because, you know, it's fun. And uh, the Scottish would come over the border and they would rape and pillage and then the English would go over the border and they would rape and pillage and then they'd be a lot more sportsmanlike about it when they invaded, when the English invaded France or the French tried to invade England um, and they would do what is called a chevauchée. The whole point of a chevauchée is to go through and rape and pillage and make the general populace feel what is going on because then they will turn against their leaders or they will cry out to their leaders. If you think about it, most people living in Normandy probably didn't care who was actually sitting on the throne because they never saw any of the benefit. Whether it was an English king or a French king, they didn't care. Yeah. So by going in and doing a punitive run, as it were, 
which by the way Henry V banned he would not allow that because he said they're my people so you're not going to you're not going to treat them this way yeah um, that sort of thing which was absolutely horrendous um, was sort of that's what you did and you know I, again I'm really not trying to point fingers this is just a historical example the French were I won't say the French were terrible. The French were terrible for doing it to the extent that they did. Mm -hmm. um, they absolutely wiped Soissons off the map. Um, and it was horrendous and no quarter was given and nobody was left alive. And they had a lot of fun with them before they died kind of thing. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> Once again, it's that whole thing of, no, we must stand against the enemy because if not, your women will be the ones who suffer. Yeah. And I do think that does kind of lead us onto this discourse around violence against women, which flares up every couple of months. You'll see something on the news and people will say it's dreadful. It's not safe for women to go out with violence against women, etc., etc. I'm not at any point saying that this doesn't exist. It absolutely does. Yeah. But I have to say, if you're talking about violence on the street against women, um, statistically, you are far more likely to get attacked if you're male. Yeah. And... The, something that Alan has pointed out before to, when we've, we've discussed it is the fact that yes it's actually men who are perpetrating these acts so why are we not dealing with that area why are we not concentrating it on that rather than using it as kind of a political agenda to say no see women are being oppressed in the, in the west etc etc yeah and the fact is that and something which is kind of ignored and very important to recognize is that violence against women um you know very frequently the perpetrators perpetrators of violence against women are relatives family close friends partners yeah um, it's but, it's quite unusual it's i say unusual it's rarer for it to be something that you just get dragged off the street it's not impossible no, but, but it's it it's more unusual yeah um Whereas, you know, women are, are who are being abused are more likely, again, or who are faced with violence are more likely, um, it, it's more likely to be a perpetrator that they know. Um, and weirdly enough, when it comes to this, this fridging sort of trope and stuff like that, is that very often you don't have it like that. It's not an abuser who you know. It's not it's nothing like that it's it's always an invading force an attacking force and that really i think for me speaks to the political history uh, behind this and also the fact that at its heart it's about rallying men um you know it's about basically saying this this could happen to someone you care about which is why we don't see it where it's like a you could do this to someone you care about we don't see it like that yeah we don't i think you're absolutely right i remember when i was about seven years old and it was one winter night and we were driving back my parents were in the front of the car and obviously it was me my sister in the back and the radio was on and i remember the slightly hysterical tones of the male radio presenter saying it's not safe for women and girls to go out at night and me thinking why is there a specific like monster out there that preys on women and you know specifically on females and then it went on a bit further and i was think and i kind of remember the gist of it was that you know because men might be out there yeah and it let's just say it did not gel with my 
my personal experience. My personal experience was that harm can happen to you anywhere <laughs> and that you're often more safe outside. <laughs> so um, it didn't really track in that respect. And so, but it always stuck in my mind. And I remember thinking, is there something about the dark that makes the predators come out kind of thing, which, you know, is classic folklore, isn't mm. it? And then you you get to, uh, it happened, I think there was another sort of outcry in the 90s. And then again, and after, you, you know, I'm not trying to cite age and experience so much again, but after you've seen this cycle repeat itself for a few decades, you're like, oh, this is this by another name. This is the same hysteria because someone is trying to advance some sort of political agenda and it may or may not be for your benefit. Yeah. Now, obviously, that is not to say that there aren't dangers out there or that women that Absolutely. haven't... Like, obviously, they have, uh, but so have men. Um, but the, the this idea of it being dangerous for women and very particularly the use of women in that... T tends to come with you know it, it's loaded yeah i think it is and it seems to be that that certain i really don't want to use feminist groups i don't think it's necessarily feminist i think it's a group of people who've attached themselves to sort of feminist type issues mm -hmm. who are using that term probably badly um and maybe they don't feel that they've really got anything to do or anywhere to go and they don't want to tackle any of the really big fights which are happening elsewhere in the world that really do need help and attention. And so they're picking this thing so that they can feel... Maybe In some cases it's probably well-intentioned, but in others it's a certain very small group of people who need to feel like they matter. So they attach themselves to this sort of thing and they're trying to advance something and they can't see that what they're, they're actually doing is setting things back and alienating people who you know we should all be on the same side really because quite frankly violence against men isn't acceptable either no and it and it just doesn't get reported on and again this is not us therefore saying oh there isn't violence against women perpetrated by strangers or women aren't getting attacked obviously that isn't true. We do have women being attacked. It can be dangerous to be out at night in certain places. And certainly it can feel very dangerous or very threatening if you're a woman. But the fact of the matter is, is that actually that is also happening to men. And it's the very particular emphasis on violence against women, which comes with a lot of things. And in some respects, you might say, well, it's helping to raise awareness about this. Yes, but it's is that actually what is truly behind it? The decision to focus on that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it shows that sexism is a double-edged sword because on one hand you're saying, oh, well, it's this. And what you're doing is you're taking up the thing that girls are told very, very early on, which is, no, be afraid, be very afraid, mm. which I don't think is actually a very clear or useful message, frankly. And at the same time, you're you're saying to men, don't be afraid, don't be cautious, don't be sensible. Yeah, and, and attaching this idea of shame to it as well. That uh, you won't be listened to. Yeah. So on one hand, you've got the, well, you are born to be a victim, and on the other, you've got the, nobody will believe you if you say you are. I mean, you obviously get that on both sides. I just think it's... <sighs> Hysterical messages are not helpful, ultimately, is what I'm getting at. Mm. Anyway, back to our fridging trope and our conclusions. Yeah. 
it's undeniable that as well as being a trope or a literary device, this was a strategically legitimate sort of a system that was used to outrage societies, um, mostly those with citizenship and power, um, you know, particularly men, uh, into action. And you can understand why. Um, and, you know, we've talked in the past about kind of sort of mentalities and stuff like that and also sort of about the way that society pushes and the way society has for a very long time pushed mentalities and, and ideas um, about what it is to be male uh, to the extent that there's this this kind of concept of where are you allowed to find comfort? Where are you allowed to grieve? Where are you allowed to do X, Y, Z? Um, and it's only in the case of with women that is the only kind of excuse and we very much see that in the modern day which is that you can see you can see a, a, a sort of an action hero he can he can shed a manful tear if it's because he's lost his lady love but otherwise no no that's not allowed um the only time you can have softness vulnerability is with women and so the idea of fridging women isn't just about the getting rid of the women it's also about the this is the loss of the sacred space um the the loss of somewhere where you can feel safe welcomed loved um you know it's not just the loss of a person it is the loss of this whole kind of side to you which you are not allowed to express in any other place um yeah. and is therefore sacred and important and and etc yeah it's like, of course he became a deranged animal once he lost him the woman who is the civilizing influence in his life yes, etc et exactly and this is it's so sunk in our collective psyche that it's crept through you know thousands of years of myth folklore and historical record um but you know as we've talked about in, in many episodes in various different ways it's really not outside the realms of possibility to have a character act regardless of gender off the back of the death of a loved one or you know the harm of a loved one uh, but there are any number of fairy tales and myths about women rescuing their husbands and brothers um so this whole sort of inspiration of protective traits mm -hmm. um caused by this this harm to a loved one that's not just a male thing but it's almost like you can only have it in a male character if this terrible traumatic thing happens to them because otherwise it looks like weakness and i think that's a problem yeah i agree um and i think that you know at the heart of that is also the the fact that in order to make it sort of possible um these women have to basically be completely liberated of anything that really makes them human because they have to represent that ideal yeah. so you might have a little bit of them you know being the literal personification of perfection and then they are they're just dead they're gone they're they're horrific they are literally just there for this horrific deed to happen to them in order to trigger sort of the story um and this is for me where we start to see what i would consider to be fridging versus what i would consider not to be fridging um and i would say that if you have a character who has died or who and they are a female character and they have died or um 
and that has actually effect you would hope that that would affect the male character or someone else who knew them um yeah it's not just yeah that's good night sweetheart it's moving on to pastures new (laughs) exactly Um, that's okay but you've got to treat this female character as a character of their own they have got to be a formed character even if they died before the story begins um you've got to have a sense of them they've got to feel real um and their the impact of what's happened uh, can't just be rage which is then okay well that's done and i've ticked that off the box and now i'm ready to just kind of move on and start with a new civilizing factor it's got to be treated sort of with with depth and consideration which is that this is a real person has died according to this character to this person you know yeah definitely so basically yes it is a sexist trope and really there are better ways to achieve the objectives so let's look at a few of those yes um obviously number one is as madeline said make the victim a whole character nobody should get wheeled on stage just to get raped or die yes and again you can actually make someone a whole character in quite a short space of time um it is possible you know even if they are it's a side character or it's a character again who's died before the story has begun you don't need to dedicate a whole you know sort of a whole chapter to them or anything like that it is possible to make someone feel real and vivid um in actually quite a short space of time but you've got to invest in it so no excuses (laughs) (laughs) um ask yourself if they couldn't serve the plot more by staying alive yes you should do that with any character death to be honest yeah um do they need to die um would it not be better if they did survive and you know maybe they've survived and they have actually been changed by what's happened and they have still left your main character you don't necessarily need to have them you know perhaps they've checked out in other ways you don't need to have them physically die and you know if not um actually establish a connection between the victim and the main character um and no just telling us oh they're married that isn't enough um you know give them a build-up show us the emotional connection we should care about the victim in their own right we should care about them as an individual their death should affect us not just the character definitely um also does your victim need to be female yeah <laughs> and we're not saying well okay you that means you have to have a, a gaming character or whatever it can just be you know what the love of someone's life might be their best friend it might be maybe they were in the army together or you know they went to university together or something and they are genuinely just the best of friends and then one of them is murdered for some reason yeah absolutely that 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 would be you know it doesn't have to be a female character yeah um and you know as we've said before it can also you know sometimes it's a mother figure it can also be a father figure um and that can be a literal father or it can just be someone who is you know parental uh, a teacher etc so you know don't limit yourself um and finally is there another way to enact the same character change for the main character could the conflict between the pair do it or some other event for example yeah I mean, I, I think that's probably a good go-to one if you, if, you know, if you want to, as Madeline said, you know, maybe someone's been changed by something and they've left or they've checked out in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps 
perhaps the couple as a pair have lost a child or something mm-hmm. which you know if you know the statistics about couples who stay together after losing a child well that you know they're not good yeah so that sort of thing um if you don't want to go that traumatic you don't have to it could be one of them has you know, perhaps the female in that situation has lost a friend and he just cannot understand it and she's just not emotionally available um, and that sets him off in some other way it can be all sorts of things it even doesn't have to be that tragic it could just be look you know, i can see that we're growing apart yeah and i don't like it and i don't know what to do yeah one of my favorite things that i've, I've seen online was um a story idea i think it might have been for D, which is just that you have this sort of grizzled main character um who's just every time and that he he's like i'm i'm fighting for my wife um this is all for the sake of my wife and before battles he'll take out a little pocket watch and you know just sorry not a pocket watch like a locket open it and there's a picture of his of his wife and you know there's just this whole dedication everything's for his wife he's just he just loves her so much and then at the end you know everyone else is like ah yes he lost his wife you know this is all sort of part of his of his path of getting righteousness and then at the end he's like well time to go home and they get back to the village and his wife is there and she pops out and he just runs over and they're like wait she was alive the whole time he's like yeah i was fighting so i could get back to my wife she's awesome i really like her (laughs) and i thought yes (laughs) that is totally valid (laughs) he didn't need to kill her at all So a little cartoon of that. It was very cool. Yeah. Um, okay, some very quick examples in more modern fiction than I've been talking about. Mm. Both good and bad. So I do want to briefly mention The Terminal List, which was a Amazon Prime original that starred Chris Pratt as a... I want to say he uh, was basically not an SAS guy, but was it a Navy SEAL? Navy SEALs are kind of the American equivalent, aren't they? No idea. Something like that. Um <laughs> He he knew too much, and his wife and daughter get kind of taken out because of it. Why? Um, Surely, if he not... knows too much, he's the one who should be taken out. I I can't remember the specifics, and I might be slightly off here. I will say I didn't read the book, so I don't know. But the series actually gave the wife a lot of character and made her a real force in his life and people complained it was fridging and I'm like I actually don't think it is because she was clearly a whole person and she was kind of his you know she she was his port in a storm Mm. so he'd go out and do all this stuff and he could do it and then come back and be the other side of himself so it really was like losing part of himself um apparently the books are not as good at um portraying that shall we say right. uh but certainly the series i disagree with the idea that it was just fridging um the next one i put down is the punisher which is very definitely yeah a case of you know wife and child get murdered um i haven't read the comics so i can't comment on the comics yeah neither have i so okay so we, we can't comment on those if anyone else has and you'd like to let us know yes. but i I think it kind of was I mean I actually enjoyed the both series of the Punisher but it it basically was fridging yeah in order to set it up because <laughs> he is not right no <laughs> um okay uh <laughs> Dresden Files Battleground you know what I'm gonna drop a major spoiler here so if you haven't read Battleground and you want to be unspoiled um skip ahead a couple of minutes <laughs> yeah 
and I'd, I'd like to say for the record that despite some of the things that are really annoying about the Dresden Files, I will read the next book that came, comes out. And I read the novella that Jim Butcher self-published in between I, and I enjoyed it. Um, and I want to know what's going to happen next, even though I'm pretty sure I know why he did what he did in this book. Because he's done it before, and part of it is the whole, well, Harry can't possibly have a happy, healthy, romantic relationship with anybody. No. If it starts looking that way, we've got to kill her off. Um, and it, in some respects, it's not fridging, because Karen Murphy did have a whole character and character arc, and it got better as the books went on. Yeah. Um, but part of it was the reason she died was so pointless. It achieved nothing. It was nothing in the story. It did... It, it did dirty by her, frankly. Yeah. And it was literally just so that Harry could suffer. Yeah. There was no other good reason for that. Um, and I honestly, genuinely believe the reason, and I hope I'm wrong, but the reason that Jim Butcher did this was to get Karen Murphy out the way to clear the field so that Harry and Molly can get together. I will be really icked out if, if Harry and Molly get together. I mean, Molly is now in her 20s and Harry's like 40-something, so it's not like, it's not the end of the world. It's not like when she was a teenager and he was in his 30s, but... Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, I would... but I just think that the whole basis of their relationship, for me, it just, it's a no. It, it's violated the mental-teacher-type bond, doesn't it? And it's just... And yes, she is powerful in her own right, you know, she's <laughs> she's the understudy for, for Queen Mab now. Um, she is the the Winter Queen, so she's she's got a lot of power that it wouldn't be an unequal relationship. But I'm so annoyed that after all that, that mm. Karen Murphy gets casually killed off by basically what amounts to a stray bullet. It wasn't a stray bullet, but basically in that sort of scenario, and it is so that Harry can be with this this younger woman who's probably going to live the same length of time as him, admittedly. But yeah, I'm. A lot. I've said this before, and other people have come forward and gone, no, 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 he can't possibly do that. And I'm like, you want to bet? Yeah. Feels like the sort of thing Butcher would do. I know, and I'm really, really, I'm really hoping that that's not the case, because honestly, like I said, that would just be... No. <laughs> uh. Okay, um, next one. Uh, talking to the dead, uh, Harry Bingham. Yeah, now our intrepid detective who gets sent on a journey in this one is Fiona Griffiths, who has Cotard syndrome, which, you know, every so often she... Cotard syndrome's difficult because someone who has Cotard syndrome goes through phases of genuinely believing they are dead, mm. that they're not alive. They have difficulty accessing feelings, they have difficulty accessing emotion. It's normally a traumatic response and it goes into quieter, more remission-type periods, and then it will flare up again. It's very difficult. Your life expectancy, if you you have Cotard syndrome, is pretty low because at a certain point, you have to make your internal reality and external reality match, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not great. Um, <clears throat> but it makes her a really interesting character. And... Sorry, excuse me a moment. <coughs> I've talked too much, apparently. Um... <laughs> There is a woman and her daughter who basically get a, a literal fridge dropped on their heads. Wow. At the beginning of this investigation. But what I find interesting is that, first of all, they're not 
they're not known quantities to Fiona and she cares when nobody else really does because she likes to solve puzzles and she's not repulsed by their death so because death to her is an interesting state of being so she is willing to probe in where other people are just kind of like oh it's awful it's clearly a prostitution drug thing gone wrong um and and then there's the whole sort of like you know she's seeking for something with inside herself so this mystery actually gives her access to that as well mm. she kind of learns who they are and forms a bond with them in reverse from the point of their death going backwards if you see what i mean yeah and it's a really interesting use of a literal fridging <laughs> which is not actually fridging i guess then no i mean is it fridging if it's under the fridge rather than <laughs> in the fridge that's really <laughs> interesting <laughs> And the, the last one uh, we'll just mention is Spider-Man. Yeah. Of all the origin stories that keep getting retold, Spider-Man gets gets the reboot every time. Yeah. Um, but it's, again, it's not a girlfriend. It is, in fact, a father figure. Yeah. And it does... I mean, the inciting incident, Peter Parker getting his superhero powers, has already happened. But what inspires him to be a better person rather than a child playing around with the dangerous toy mm-hmm. is the death of his uncle yeah absolutely and his uncle at this point is a formed character yeah 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 very definitely um i think it works very well i think maybe that's why they keep redoing it as well because it's actually i say it's something a bit different obviously at this point it's not something different but uh, you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah, by that point, it's kind of like, oh, thank God, a superhero who doesn't have... <laughs> yes, he's got a tragic backstory, but he's not an absolute shit at the very beginning. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, um, that is the end of our episode. Obviously, as we've said, there's a lot of nuance to this. Uh, there's a long history behind it. And there's, you know, there's probably areas that we haven't considered. Um, and perhaps you don't agree with us you know we're always very happy to hear other opinions other thoughts or other little bits and bobs of research so please do let us know now before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you've actually got funnily enough not a book this time (laughs) yeah i mean i do watch television as well sometimes so Um, yeah, so I've been watching Yellow Jackets, which is on Paramount, mm-hmm. and basically this follows a girls' soccer team, mm-hmm. or football if you live in the UK, and we use the right word for the sport, <laughs> <laughs> um, a soccer team, because they're American, and they're heading off to, uh, you know, they're, they're incredibly good, and they, uh, they've made it to nationals, right? and they're being flown to the game except everything goes horribly wrong when the plane crashes in basically the Appalachian Mountains in the forest. So they're miles away from anyone else and they're stranded there and some of them died in the crash. The pilots died in the crash. They've only got one actual adult with them. The rest of them are like 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something like nine girls and there's a 12-year-old boy and a 16-year-old boy as well and their coach who loses his leg in the crash. So there's that to contend with as well. And then you flash back to now because this is set in the 90s Mm -hmm. and you flash back to now and they're now... the, the, 
the three characters it sort of follows are now women in their sort of late 40s and you're kind of seeing gradually it gradually peels back layers and shows you how this thing affected them um it's really really interesting there's a mystery going on as well because someone is trying to blackmail them there's also this weird symbol that appeared in the woods when things started to go really really weird and hinky for them when they were out there stranded um and now that's back again and they'd all made this pact of silence they came back and they said you know we scattered we starved and we prayed that we would be rescued and we finally were rescued and nobody will say anything more than that someone is trying to make them talk right so there's so, and it, it start. it's got a vaguely supernaturally feel but you don't know whether there's something supernatural going on or whether it's just a case of no in that scenario some weird sort of survival instincts kind of kick in yeah full disclosure this doesn't shy away with some of the nastiest stuff when it comes down to starvation um including cannibalism you're prepped very very early on that this is probably something that's going to happen don't really have the full story because i haven't watched the second season yet but going into that probably tomorrow but it's really really good it's so well written it's interesting and um it, it's got great characters so i highly recommend it if you've got paramount i will definitely have to check that out though whether i have the stomach for it is a <laughs> and on that note guys we will say thank you so much for listening and we will catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>